This is WRAL News, your number one source for local news. North Carolina's reopening will begin just hours after we all see what's projected to be the worst jobs report in American history. Tonight, we have in-depth analysis and reaction to the April numbers as people in the state continue to struggle to even file for unemployment benefits. Good evening and thank you for joining us. I'm Deborah Morgan. And I'm Gerald Owens. By this time tomorrow night, we will be in phase one of North Carolina's reopening. Beginning at 5 o'clock, stores will be allowed to open at 50% capacity. Restaurants will not. They are part of phase two, which is at least two weeks away. In this half hour, WRL's Keely Arthur will show us how some restaurant owners are concerned they won't be able to survive after that point. But we begin with the retailers. WRL's Julian Grace is live in Durham, where one shop is preparing for the big opening. Julian? Gerald, we are talking about Morgan Imports here, and they didn't think they could open their doors here until May 15th. That is until they received a call yesterday telling them they could possibly open as early as tomorrow. And take a look at this. They are already ready. They have curbside shopping available. This is what else we found out. Staff has arranged the items in the store with keeping social distancing in mind. Now, Morgan Imports has been through a work stoppage before during the Durham explosion. The aftermath of the explosion shut down the streets, making it difficult for customers to shop. Now they are dealing with the pandemic. The owners say they've taken precaution for those who show up to shop here tomorrow or this weekend as well. They want to make sure everyone is safe. When we do the drive, the curbside, um, it's, I don't have to put gloves on when I'm giving someone their um, receipt. I can just, you know, hand the receipt to them this way. You can see it right there. They are ready to go. Now, Morgan Imports will open their doors on Saturday at 11 o'clock a.m. to 5 o'clock p.m. And, Gerald, they say they are ready to serve this community once again. Yeah, people are being creative to get through this pandemic. Julian Grace, live in Durham. They Thank are. you, Julian. It will be at least two more weeks before restaurants can serve customers in dining rooms. WRL's Keeley Arthur shows us many restaurant owners are concerned they won't make it until then and could have to close for good. Famed chef Ashley Christensen announced that she is permanently shutting down her restaurant, Chuck's. She says COVID-19 is to blame and unfortunately it is a similar story for other restaurants too. Running a restaurant is tough and making it during a pandemic, now that's nearly impossible. And it has nothing to do with how they were, very little to do with any of it, how they were running their businesses, you know, what they were doing, it didn't matter. It's all completely out of their hands. Lou Ritas owns two restaurants in Rocky Mount, including an American table. We've had to do some adapting. We spoke to him when the shutdown started. Um, a lot of the initial, yes, let's go. The reality sits in catching up with him now by way of video conference. His outlook has changed. I chose to stay open knowing it probably wasn't going to cover everything, thinking in four weeks, you know, we'll reevaluate, we'll loosen up a little bit, you know, and start the social distance dining room then. Well, here it is four more weeks after that. How devastating is this to your industry? We've surveyed membership and, you know, only a few of those, 35% uh, have indicated that they could make it if we're closed for two months. With that two-month marker fast approaching, restaurants closed dining in around March 17th. Lynn Mingus, the president and CEO of North Carolina's Restaurant and Lodging Associations, says even with a tentative and limited reopen date of May 22nd, things will look very different the next time you can dine out.
to have it maybe all go away after 40 years of hard work because of nothing I did wrong, um, in spite of doing everything mostly right, it, it's heartbreaking. It's it's actually it's crushing. We did reach out to Christensen and her team. They did not respond. As for Lou Rita, he says he is going to try to keep his restaurants open. Of course, though, that could change. Keely Arthur, WREL, Raleigh. Further down the list for reopening concert venues and theaters. They're planning for how their venues will change when they have the clearance to open. At the Carolina Theater in Durham, management developed a detailed plan of policies and procedures, which includes asking patrons and employees to wear masks. You can also expect reduced capacity to help make social distancing easier. And we'll put dots on seats where people can sit so they don't have to figure it out themselves. And there, we will have measured a radius all around them. They hope to reopen the smaller theaters in July and the larger venues in September. Until then, they have started selling concessions every Friday as a way to make some money. Well, the competing headline for tomorrow's partial reopening and possibly the dominating headline, it's what's expected to become the worst jobs report in the country's history. Today we had a preview with more than 3 million Americans filing for unemployment last week. Joining us now to help paint a picture of the economic situation, Dr. Henry McCoy, economist, professor at North Carolina Central. Dr. McCoy, thanks again for being with us. Talking about painting a picture, if you had a canvas tonight, would you put anything on it other than black paint? Uh, probably not. I mean, this is a incredible time in our history. And as you mentioned, the, the report that is um, coming out tomorrow is likely going to show that it's the worst unemployment that we've seen in history. And of course, we know that um, it's not over, but we do believe that most of the new claims are probably behind us, even though the way a recession essentially works is that, you know, people lose jobs, they stop spending, uh, companies don't have access to the capital, they then lay people off, people stop spending. So, so it's really a, um, as you say, a sad picture to see. You know, I, I'm curious, Dr. McCoy, when you talk about a recession, Where's the threshold between a recession and a depression? Well, I think that that's a very good question, David. And I would say that we, um, I say that we, we probably are uh, personal against the depression. I, I think one of the important things to keep in, to, um, I say, into factoring is the fact that um, this is a essentially a, um, a recession that has been driven by a, 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 a external. Um, dominance of a of a disease, which is very different from usually. Usually, a recession is driven by you know some economic um, situation that that then causes people to be laid off, and then if that gets too worse, then it goes into a depression. But I think right now, I mean, we we still are in the recession territory. You know, I remember ten years ago with the recession, we called it the Great Recession. But we had an idea of what we knew would bring us out of it, what had to be done with the economy. With this pandemic, without borders to it, worldwide, how do we begin to find a way to get traction to bring us to a point where we are making progress to come back? I think we're in that, that tense moment right now, and we have you know part of the country that's ready to open up and have been opening up. Um, you know, even in North Carolina tomorrow, um, uh, after 5 p.m., we're going to have certain businesses open. And so, really, with us, it's a question about safety versus getting the economy back up and running. And so I say different from say the Great Recession in 2008, where it was market forces and we had to figure out, well, how do we essentially mitigate those market forces and try to 
innovate our way out of that. This is very different. Um, until we get some kind of vaccine, until we figure out the, the best way to open up the economy without um, causing, say, a second or third wave of this, um, even going into the winter time, it's going to be very hard to figure out what is the best way to reopen. But again, I, I say one of the great things about um, the situation now compared to, say, you know, 10, 12 years ago or the Great Depression is the fact that uh, we do have ways that we can still communicate. Uh, we do know that this is driven by crisis and it's global, very new, unique. So I think the government's going to have to continue to uh, step in and, and bolster the economy until we can figure out, uh, you know, how we can operate it safely. Dr. McCoy, one last thing here. Let's talk about North Carolina specifically. We had a news poll released last week, Survey USA polling North Carolinians. 62% said they were optimistic about their own family's economic outlook. 21% were pessimistic, about 70% just weren't sure. Another day for the markets today where we had a lot of green. Market after the crash of a few weeks ago continued to claw its way back. My coworkers would tell you, I'm a pretty positive thinking guy, but I was shocked at that number to see 62% optimistic. Help me with my lens. What am I missing here? I think a, a lot of times when you see surveys like that, people tend to also actually think of themselves as being in a better situation. And again, not all folks. I mean, I think all of us have seen stories where people are really struggling and they're um, you know, really worried about tomorrow. Um, um, you know, let alone down the line. But I think a lot of folks tend to think that they're going to be fine. And so you know, I think also perhaps is, is, is uh, folks, you know, being uh, optimistic in hopes that, okay, this will turn around soon. And so I think, you know, it's part of the resilience of, um, you know, our, our American citizens, part of the resilience of our North Carolinians to feel like tomorrow is going to be better, particularly for our own families. Well, you named it. I think you nailed it right there with resilience. So, Dr. Henry McCoy from North Carolina Central. As always, we appreciate your time and insight. Have a good night, sir. Thank you, David. Those on the front lines of the fight against coronavirus are struggling too. I cry when I need to, for sure. That, that makes me feel better. You know, when I just let myself feel what I'm feeling, which is just that it shouldn't be this way. How one local hospital is answering the call to help the helpers. And take a look at your screen why the three curves you see there could be a life or death history lesson. A UNC history professor joins us live to explain. You're watching coverage you can count on with WRAL News. I'm not depressed and I'm not sad. Um, you know, generally speaking, I'm able to enjoy my life and enjoy my children, but I'm definitely never not thinking about it. And so it's just this shadow over everything. Our healthcare workers on the front lines of this battle, they are there day after day. You just heard from Ashley Wheeler, the ER nurse from Duke Regional. We hear regular updates from each week. WREL's Amanda Lamb shows us hospitals are starting to support their staff members who need help dealing with the emotional toll of the pandemic long after it passes. Dr. Lorna Breen battled COVID-19 as the director of a New York City emergency room. She then battled the virus herself, got well, and went back to work. But a short time later, she took her own life. She didn't want to give up. 
she would not give up. She would not let it break her, which of course it did. The concern about PTSD, and then recently in the news about um, some suicides is very concerning. Dr. Samantha Meltzer Brody heads the UNC Department of Psychiatry. The mental health impact of the pandemic is serious. I've spoken with many overwhelmed healthcare workers during the pandemic. I cry when I need to, for sure. That, that makes me feel better. You know, when I just let myself feel what I'm feeling, which is just that it shouldn't be this way. As a mom on my way home, I cry every time coming home because I don't know if I've been in contact with somebody and I'm bringing it home to my kids. Hospitals are now creating mental health support programs specifically for their staff. We decrease the stigma about reaching out. This has nothing to do with whether am I strong enough or tough enough. This is called being a human being during a challenging time. This week, UNC launched the Healing Heroes Helpline, a free 24-7 hotline available to its 35,000 workers statewide. And we want to make sure that that we are able to support our entire workforce in having timely and accessible care that is confidential. A need that will likely continue long after the pandemic is behind us. Amanda Lamb, WRAL News. Being a human being during a challenging time. The goal for the program at UNC Health is to connect staff as early as possible with the resources they need, including counseling to keep them healthy. We have provided a link to the UNC Health helpline in this story on WRL.com. Navigating the coronavirus pandemic is uncharted waters for just about all of us, but not this woman. She's 105-year-old Sandy Purdy. She survived the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, and she's making her way through this one as well. Purdy's family celebrated her 105th birthday yesterday at her home in Salemburg. She was just three years old when the Spanish flu infected 500 million people worldwide. It killed between 20 and 50 million people, including 675,000 Americans. Purdy doesn't remember much about it. She was just a little girl, but she'll never forget what her mother told her about the horrible medicines they were told to take to prevent it. My mama said you see somebody carrying a body this way, a body that with people dying like that. Cast the oil and certain time or something, everything like that. Now, Purdy's father, Claude Crumpler, he also survived the Spanish flu, and he lived to be 115. Now, most of us weren't around for the pandemic 100 years ago, but it could teach us all a lesson. Joining us for that lesson is UNC professor Jim Lutis. Dr. Lutis, thank you very much for being with us. We know exams wrapped up. It's been a very busy time for you. We really appreciate it. Thanks. Good to be here. Now, health experts have told us to prepare for a second wave with this virus. Remind our viewers what happened with the second and third waves in North Carolina during the 1918 flu. Well, sure. The 1918-1919 um, Spanish flu pandemic, uh, it developed in three waves. The first one began in mid-May and, and lasted through July, and it, it was relatively uh, mild and, and, and limited, uh, certainly by comparison to what would follow. The, the second wave broke out in August uh, and ground on through December. I think there's no way to describe that second wave as anything other than a whirlwind of death. And then there was a third and final phase from uh, February through April of 1919. By time all was said and done, about 520,000 North Carolinians, that's about 20% of the population, had fallen ill uh, with the virus and uh, just under 14,000 of those people died. This administration has been criticized for acting too slowly, for its response. 
Uh, talk about the government response back in 1918 versus the government response now and why the distinction is so important. Well, as I said, you know, that first way, it was relatively limited, uh, not terribly severe, and that, and that left people with a, a sense of complacency that, and that's understandable that uh, since the disease had come and, and gone and wouldn't be a problem into the future. And that alone was a, enough to leave people unprepared for that second wave. But what made it even worse was a combination of military censorship and, and also denial at the very highest political level. You can imagine that military officials uh, in Europe and here in the United States were reluctant uh, for there to be open reporting on how the spread of the disease was uh, affecting their preparedness on the battlefield. And, here in the U.S., um, President Woodrow Wilson, uh, even as the second wave built, um, denied, really refused to, to confront the severity uh, of the crisis because he was determined to keep the country's focus on, on the war effort. Racial disparity during COVID-19 has been a big headline. Was this also the concern back in 1918? I think one of the things that's really striking when you look at the current crisis is, uh, on this count, how much it mirrors 1918, uh, 1919. You know, today, no Blacks, North Carolinians constitute about 22% uh, of the state's population, but they represent uh, around 39% of the COVID-19 cases and 35% of deaths. So if you do the math quickly in your head, uh, today, in this crisis, black North Carolinians are dying at about one and a half times the rate of their white neighbors. If you go back to 1918, 1919, um, the proportion is uh, exactly the same um, that in 1918, 1919, that in that pandemic, black North Carolinians, again, died at about one and a half times the frequency of their white neighbors. Considering the advancements in technology and the advancements in medicine, as a historian and an expert on the modern South, do you have any reason to believe that history will repeat itself? Well, you know, I think historians always have to be careful here. I know the old adage says that history repeats itself. It doesn't do that very often, but it but it does rhyme. And I think maybe the, the lesson for us um, as we look back on 1918, 1919, and this is related to some of the points I was just making, is that you know, some of our most essential tools in fighting a, a pandemic of this source, um, our, our essential tools are scientific facts and, um, and, and truth-telling. Uh, those are really critical, and I think without those things, we are at uh, considerably greater peril. Let's fast forward 100 years from now. What do you think the next generations may learn from the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, you know what, if I imagine um, looking back 100 years from now as a historian and trying to write this story, I think I might point out two things. First of all, that uh, a crisis of this sort always exposes uh, a society's weaknesses. And you know, I'm sure that historians in the future, as they tally them, uh, will point to the racial disparity we were just talking about. And I think also perhaps uh, they might point to the inadequacy of the social safety net that we've built to protect people who are, who are most affected uh, by, by the coronavirus outbreak. Uh, I think those historians will also say that times of crisis not only expose our weakness, but they offer us an opportunity, an opportunity to, to confront the, the weaknesses, to learn from them, and, and to build a, a, be a better future. And I, I think that um, that's where we're likely to be judged, uh, the degree to which we're willing to 
confront some of the exposed weaknesses and to take that knowledge and that understanding and to build for the future the kind of North Carolina, the kind of America that we want to live in, we want for our neighbors, and that we want to bequeath to our children. Well, we all hope that history does not repeat itself, not with 675,000 deaths. Dr. Jim Malutis with UNC's Department of History, we really appreciate you being with us and for your insight. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Another honor and salute for our frontline heroes today. Sky 5 captured part of the National Guard's flyover this morning. The C-17 plane with the 145th Airlift Wing of the North Carolina National Guard flew over hospitals across North Carolina, starting in Charlotte, before going through the Triad, Chapel Hill, Durham, Butner, Raleigh, Wilson, and Goldsboro. Then one week from tonight, WRAL, the Bandit Flight Team, and the North Carolina Healthcare Association are joining forces for another aerial tribute to frontline workers. The flight team will make several stops along the way including right here in the Triangle. The show begins at 7 p.m. That does it for our 7 o'clock news. <laughs> our next newscast is 10 o'clock on Fox 50.